first of all, I want to thank the owners or the owner of this restaurant because it's so conducive to learning and it's so Beiruti and it has lots of history too. After it has probably collapsed during the Beirut blast, it is now back alive and full of knowledge, I would say, or exchange of knowledge at least. Uh, really, thank you for the owners. Thank, thank you for the belief that that Beirut should remain alive. And now driving down Jemaizi Street for the first time in four months, definitely, I see more lives. I see more cafes open. And it just fills my heart. It's so nice. I don't know if I want to call it resilience or not. I hate this word. But I want to say that we are really full of life and nobody should take it away from us. So to start with. And the second thing, he's not innocent in his questions. I know where he's getting into and to. He's always like this. He starts in a nice tone, but it's not true. So that day... Wait a minute, wait a no, minute. No, 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 wait. I'm a nice that guy. That day when we were walking, and, and Walid can attest to this, right? Yeah, he was there. Yeah. So when we were walking, I think the first thing I told Ronnie that he was right. And he said, are you ready to say this on the microphone? And I said, yes. And then, okay, I'm going to invite you to Alia next time. <laughs> so, so, you know, <laughs> he made this beautiful introduction, but he was getting right into one thing to tell him, yes, you're right. <laughs> That's what we agreed on. It was going to include an apology. <laughs> so, so do you want to tell the story of you why know, you're right? I'd rather hear it from you, actually. Okay. Yeah. So ever since we, we started, like he said, it's been like five uh, episodes between, between podcast and, uh, and Instagram. We had this, I don't want to say argument or disagreement, but there was two different opinions that we always spoke about or discussed. And that was, or that still is, whether Lebanon is able to get up on its feet alone or it needs the support of the international community. So that was the ideas that we discussed every time. And in every time, I was so assertive that it's not true that we need anybody's help. We could, we could do it on our own until this last time we walked and I said, you know what? I think you're right. We're not going to be able to do it on our own. We need help. Can we give a round of applause to Najat for doing this, please? Yeah. Not because it has anything to do with me, but it just shows you're a very uh, careful politician, but you're also a deep thinker when it comes to this tragedy. So it means a lot that you're even willing to rethink certain things in such a short period of time with an idiot like me it really oh, means a lot no. so i'm <laughs> really it means a lot that you're willing to to go down that road but i'll i'll let you keep going so um i it doesn't mean that i'm underestimating our ability to make a difference and we will reflect on this as we go but due to the experience that ronnie had and also Monica, Lukman's wife, 
they were insisting on not seeking help, but calling for the attention of the international community to the tragedies that we have lived in order for us to put more pressure on the locals to do something more more humane and more democratic and more meaningful. And this is very, very important because I'm coming to realize after, like Ronnie said, reflecting a lot on what we can do and we cannot do, I totally believe, I mean, totally is a big word now, especially in politics. I currently believe that attracting the attention of the inhumane way that we are living and the dignity that is stolen from us requires or calls for international attention. And we're going to talk about this and how this materialized in action right after I started, you know, believing in this later on. I want to thank Ronnie for being always this person who uh, really puts more questions at the end of his talk than answers in the mind of his uh, host. And, uh, And really, it's always a pleasure to discuss things with you, Ronnie. It's an honor that we get to do this regularly. Um, I didn't expect that kind of uh, eloquent statement you just made. I'm going to turn that into a trailer for the podcast. <laughs> and every promotion I do, that's going to be the... <laughs> the <laughs> no, it means a lot that we get to do this regularly. And with your permission, uh, I'll go one step further on that topic. Um, I know that you were traveling recently. And to be honest, Monica Borgman, uh, Lukman's widow, was supposed to be here tonight. She wouldn't. She wasn't able to make it last minute. But I think these are the conversations we've had that are not podcast related. They're more private. But we can go down that road as much as you're comfortable. Is there anything you gained from that recent trip? And is there anything you're willing to share on what you just said and if it matches to the trip? In other words, are, are there any hopeful signs coming? In the background, there was always this story about June and the UNHRC. Sorry, is that HRC or HCR? HCR. HCR, sorry. That there would be a more assertive statement in June. But maybe you, we can go there. What did you learn from this trip? And is there anything on the horizon that feels better than worse? But I want to make a long introduction, if you allow me, to just... Uh, explain how I got to going to Geneva for one week and to New York for another week and why it was so important for me to go there. So I think it was October 31st, 2022 is when Michel Aoun left the office and when we had to replace him with another president. And then after that, there was 11 sessions that made Lebanon a mockery or a joke, especially in the way the election sessions were conducted. And I was talking to my colleagues and I say, you know, we can't continue like this. We must do something about this. And especially that, you know, we're not there to just stamp what other people have done, especially that they did this in 2016 and you know they waited between 2014 and 2016 for two and a half years 
and nobody said anything. So they were advising me to relax and not to be so anxious about it and not to expect anything before June. I don't know why they were, they were right, but here comes June and nothing has happened yet. But for me, sitting or going on with my life as normal, pretending that it's okay as a member of the parliament to break the law and wait until the right moment happens, could, is not, was not conceivable. So this is when uh, Milham uh, presented the sit-in to me and other change MPs. But for me, it made sense, not because we wanted to elect a president only, just because it was so important to say that we have a constitution, we respect the institutions we're in, and we really need to show that we care. And ever since, we can talk about the sit-in later, but I just wanted to make this introduction to say when we started sitting in the parliament, it was more work than when we were out. Because when we were out, we had time to socialize and go and attend to people's need or talk to people and everything. So here we are sitting inside and not really talking or, or, or going out. And so we started reaching out to the international world. We started talking to our friends, to our colleagues, and started thinking loud with a lot of people. And this is when the idea of reaching out to, inter to the international community came about. So from January till May, it was a, you know, a continuous buildup to those visits. So they didn't come right away. And they didn't come with, with, with no hard work. They came with hard work. So we wrote, we optimized good letters to the High Commissioner of Human Rights. We wrote to him, he wrote back, and he said he sympathizes with our situation. We wrote back again, and this is when we started asking for appointments. And what was, you know, the main concern that we wanted to approach the problem with two things or three things. The state of law. We need a state of law because we need to be to feel protected by the law and we need to have dignity in our life and that's the basic thing of human rights. So these were the two things that we focused on. All right? And we started talking to you and officials who work on these particular subjects and this is when things started making sense to them that, yes, they have something to show us and we have something to say to them, so let's invite them. Mm. And this is how, it's, how it happened. So it's a, it's a long four months of hard work to get to that. And we can talk about the details of who I met and what they said, if you want to. But I'm just saying, you know, the preparations to get to this point we're not just, hey, hello, let me, let me go. Can you, can you get me, you know, can you uh, accept me or can you invite me? It was a long process of preparation. So I'll shape the next subject so that it fits into that. But just to let the audience know, there's an empty chair in case anyone in the back wants to move front. We have one empty chair, just in case. Let me narrow it down to two things at once. And actually, it's quite interesting. 
was it last week? We had the May 7 anniversary, the May 7 events that happened it's last Sunday, sorry. And then a day earlier, it's that Martyr's Day we don't really talk about anymore. It's meant to be part of our past. Instead, it carries on to our present, hence the dialogue with Monica. But those two subjects seem to fit in to that trip, meaning it's trying to address two things at once. It's trying to overcome security paralysis that doesn't allow Tarabitar to do his job. It's also trying to offer some protection so that violence is not political discourse anymore. But in at least my experience with talking to some of the same people, albeit not the same way, and sometimes they're simply European officials that visit here, and they like to learn what's happening, and I'm preview to these discussions. It always feels like this is left to the margins, meaning, rather than something more lobbying, something more assertive like a Security Council resolution, something goes to UNHCR, or HRC, sorry, HRC. And that seems to be more symbolic than action-oriented. It's almost like we can have something that's said louder in June than it was a few months ago, but that doesn't guarantee anything. I don't know if that's being too bleak. I don't know if I'm prejudging. Maybe there's more that needs to be said. But that's the direction I see. And the reason I see it going down that road is because, and we've talked about this before, it took so much work to get international action earlier. It actually took years and years and years of effort to have international curiosity into any form of political violence in Lebanon. I don't see that happening this round. I see more three years in, this is almost like a, it's a stamp rather than anything that can actually see tangible results. So you, you tell me if I'm wrong or if there's something there that you see that's not sort of 100% true, but that's the instinctual feeling. I hate to say that he's right all the time. <laughs> no, I mean... No, you can say it again. I don't mind. No. <laughs> um, Next episode, it's just us talking about that. <laughs> um, yes, you're right, Ronnie, that a statement from the Security Council alone will not do much. And, and Sorry, this is not even Security Council. This is... Any, anything that comes from the Security Council, if it doesn't reach a resolution, Sorry, it, yes. remains, it remains something that, it remains something of an opinion, of, of a statement. Right. And this is exactly what they told me. They said, we can do a statement, it's, but the statement doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. We have to push until the statement becomes a resolution. So they might be nice to us mm. and make a statement or put on the news letter of the Security Council some type of a statement just to say that Lebanon is on our radar. Sorry, just to interrupt. Is it a Security Council resolution that's on the horizon or a Human Rights Council resolution? I, thought it's... I don't think there is a resolution that is going to happen if uh, I'm not, yeah. mis I don't know of, okay. of one. I see. What I'm trying to say is what they told us. They told us that we want Lebanon to be on the radar. 
and we want to hear about Lebanon. But you have a lot to do for Lebanon's statements become resolutions. Right. Which means we have to do a lot. And we have to explain the facts to them. And we have to write to them. And we have to meet with them. And we have to be persistent. And we have to do so many different approaches to the problem. Then when they have heard enough, and not only from UN, but also from the members of states, then they can approach it. They can advance it into a resolution. So that was the message. And the message was very clear and not from only one person, from many. Who are these characters in general? If you're, if you can yes. maybe, I, I'm trying to imagine, is this just UN related people that are? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we talked to UN uh, human rights chief officers and, and mm. directors of the MENA region. Mm. And uh, we talked to the Australian ambassador also because yeah. they are the ones who pushed right. for a statement on the Beirut blast yes. injustice. They issued the first statement, or at least it fell on their desk at the beginning. No, no, it didn't. They told us it was a five-month work. So, so, sorry, the... Uh, not. I'm getting the dates wrong. Maybe it's a few months ago. There was that first statement that yes. was French, Australian, and Austrian too. Or? And it was said it was an it was presented yeah. by the Australian ambassador. Sorry, yes. So that's the one. Yeah, yeah. So when we met with them, they told us that this was a lot of hard work. Usually, a statement takes two weeks. Mm. For them, it took five months to get thirty-three signatures on it, which is a huge work. But it's not enough. Yeah. So what they said is that the Lebanese press and opinion did not pick it up and did not highlight it. So they felt like, okay, it's a statement. You know, we didn't, we didn't make it big. We yeah. didn't use the opportunity to make it big. And still, for them, it's a big deal. But in order for them to take it up into a resolution... It will require a lot more work and it will require also us, you know, yeah. putting our hands together with them in order for us to advance it into a resolution. So so nobody is going to do the work for us. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt again. Does this at the end of the day, whether it's symbolic or not, whether there's a statement or not, does that at the end of the day simply require the Lebanese state to be on board? Not, so, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So it doesn't have to come from a prime minister or majority parliament. It can be individuals that do this without the state's approval. And the reason I'm going down it's, that... It's complicated. Mm. Yes, I agree with you. It's very complicated because the UN cannot go against a government. They go against issues. Right, yeah. So so that's very important. Mm. But if we raise our voices very high and loud and we lobby with the right people, we can get there. It's not impossible, but it's not plausible for them to do that. It, it's, not, it's not preferred, I would say. Yeah. Okay, it's not the preferred drug. So, so we have, all I'm trying to say is that the same way we prepared for these meetings, we have to also follow up on these meetings. And we really need to be diverse in our approaches so that it makes sense to them and it becomes something that they are used to hear 
more than once and from many resources, like mobilizing NGOs, CSOs, international NGOs, different MPs, different organizations here in Lebanon and outside Lebanon. They need to hear it from different resources. I'll go one step further, then we can go on to other subjects. This is my memory. It could be, this is how I saw it back then, but you tell me if it's not the same way. In 2006, 7, and 8, that is when the Lebanese state pushed as far as it could to get some kind of international protection, which is not really protection, it was more attention, meaning Security Council resolutions that were not about the tribunal in itself. It was more like making sure the tribunal happens. It's almost like follow-up resolutions. I remember those years as the Lebanese state divided. And you had the Speaker of Parliament, the same Speaker today, providing obstacles to that. You had a Prime Minister that was delegitimized. 2006 to 2008, it's easy to forget. Downtown, there was a sit-in. Government was paralyzed to most, for the most part. And there was a Prime Minister in the Sarai that used to sleep there, Fuad Senyura. He slept there for many nights. But in those months... That's when the state was very proactive and the results were not always, it wasn't always in favor of the cause, but something did happen at the end of the day. And then we know what the end story is a decade later or even longer, a verdict where names that we know are, are guilty are not in jail. It's a very watered down, very uh, emotionally disappointing experience. But there was something that happened at the end of the day. Is that still in your mind the same path necessary to get somewhere? Or is that not necessary anymore? It's hard for me to see Najib Mi'ati taking the same stand Fuad Senora took 15 years ago. If, if anything, I see the opposite happening. And I see MPs trying to do something, but it doesn't really gain momentum. And I could see something which is maybe you agree or disagree. I see that there's no investigation at all at the end of the day. This whole experience ends with, we couldn't really do anything about it, but it's not your fault at the same time. So whatever you can take from that, and maybe maybe things have changed. I, I Personally, I don't see it. I see the same path as a necessity. I think there are two different things. When Fuad Sanyura was pushing for the International Tribunal, it was because there was an MP or PM who was really asking the international community, which is easier than what we're trying to do now, because mm, mm. he was an official from the government asking whether right. or not he had full approval. That's a different story. But he, as in his position, he had the ability to do this. He even s- sent a letter to the UN naming the Speaker of Parliament as an obstacle to getting there. So that was even taking a risk that's impossible to see today. Yeah. Our job is going to be more difficult, mm. but our cause rhymes very well or resonates very well mm. with people at the UN because we're not asking for anything other than living in, with our basic human rights. 
So I believe that our cause could get there probably in the same speed, if not faster. I don't, I, I'm just hopeful. Mm. I know and understand that it's a lot of work and it needs us all to get more organized so that they hear, you know, they hear it from many resources. But in a way, what we're doing is telling the international community that our government is not able to provide us right. with basic needs. And yeah. that's more difficult. Yeah. So, so in the first case, there is a government, even though it's not full approval, mm-hmm. that is asking that's easier, that's faster. Yeah. That's a faster track. For us, we're saying our government is not providing what the human, what people need. And our government is not, you know, it's preventing justice from being right. from being fulfilled. So so it's difficult. It's it's more challenging, I would say. I think it's it's so overwhelmingly challenging. And the fact that you're still trying three years or so after the blast, it shows how difficult your role is today. Because you're speaking on behalf of a cause while trying to express your government's inability to do more or unwillingness to do more, yet you still believe in it regardless, which is why I think... (laughs) That's the Finnish ambassador. Oh. (laughs) 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 This country's too small. (laughs) That's so funny. What is Finland's take on <laughs> They're they're okay with it. No, thanks for letting me ask you these difficult questions to begin with. Um, let me offer a hypothesis which can take us to other subjects. To let think- me let me let me comment on whether or not my job is difficult, and I want to go back to the process because this is I'm a I'm a woman who believes in the process, and and not. I mean, of course, I would love to see a beautiful ending result, but it's not the it's not the main the essence of the work. And I want to explain what that means. I don't I don't believe that we live as a Hollywood movie or as in we you know as if we are in a Hollywood Hollywood movie or film Masri for that say where people get married at the end and live happily ever after. So I mean, you and Milham are not getting married? <laughs> Don't go there, you know how much I love my husband. No, <laughs> yeah, so... Just an affair then. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so... So this, this idea of understanding the process and really optimizing the process is what I have, you know, what drives me to get up in the morning and do my work. This means that every single minute counts. So it's not the expectations of what the day is going to end like. It's the minutes that we live through the day that count a lot more. And this is extremely important because this way you don't live for expectations, you live for the moment. And it's it, it gives a lot more power to the individual to really love the moment 
and live the moment. So that's what it means. I I am a woman of the of a, of the process. That means that means if I am here now, I am fully giving it all because I want to talk to you or I want to talk to Ronnie and I want to make this night special for all of us. So that's important. And if it wasn't like this, and if I want to be sitting here and thinking about, you know, how I'm going to get back to the parliament, I'm going to ruin both the sitting here and the going back. And so this is also applies to everything I do in life. And if I am sitting in the parliament, I want to make the best of it, not because I want to get out on a white horse as a winner. That's not the point. The point is, I am sitting there to say, I'm a person who is respecting the constitution and respecting the institution that I belong to now, the same way I respected AUB for 20 years. That's what I'm doing. So, so this means that my life, no matter how difficult it is, if you break it down into seconds of living, it becomes enjoyable. It's a shame the institution you're currently affiliated with doesn't respect you in return. That's true. I think AUB respects us all in different ways. It can be a difficult institution sometimes, but the registrar's office and Nabih Birri are completely different experiences. But the institution is not Nabih Birri, it's us. So if we start respecting the parliament as it's us, it's ours, then we take it away from him. But the moment we start admitting to ourselves and to him that this is his, we're giving him more power. I think our sit-in just showed that this institution is not to anybody. It's for the people and it's by the people. And the people are so strong. You don't know how strong you are. And you don't know how much you scare them. Every time they hear that there are going to be two or three people on the street, they fill the place with army. They are so afraid of the people. Ashab, Umm Sulutat, it's very true. The people are so powerful if they decided to take and grab things on their own. That's why this parliament is not for anybody. It's for us. That's Madrasat Najat Aoun Saliba. I, I, let, me, let me interject. That, your world, the way you just described that situation, uh, I, that's exactly what someone in your shoes should be saying it's a shame others don't and I think it's a shame that many so-called allies are too eager to turn their backs too fast and if there's anyone that's still trying their best until today it's you and Medhem but it, I think I think you offer something else which is this trying to push away all the other stuff that is beyond our control and try to gain something at the end of the day here. That local agency and your role in it, I want to go down that road and how you see two things. Let me offer, let me offer a hypothesis. No IMF deal. 
and no port blast investigation. Maybe a likely scenario. These two things don't happen, and you're still a member of Parliament. I'll get to Babda later. Forget Babda for now. How does your role evolve when those two major those two major issues are thrown off the table and you're still a member of parliament in a parliament that doesn't really offer you the role that you seek? Is it something that you just do you do you stay in parliament until the next election? Do you resign in protest? Is there something like that that maybe gives you, in a way, a path to say, if others don't join me, I'll still resign on my own because I won't stay in this climate and acknowledge it or accept it or legitimize it? doesn't have to be today. doesn't have to be next year. I'm just thinking, how do you, how do you keep your principles intact for the next three years? If, if things simply don't work out, I'm going to be as honest as I can be. With this government, with this parliament or parliament members, there will be no IMF deal and no justice for the Beirut blast and a president in in Baghdad that we don't like. And I know you like you like those cynical uh, conclusions, but it's true. Not- I mean this is this is this is what I feel. With, with the current parliament. This is it. But at the same time, I don't think I will be just sitting in the parliament. Mm. Resigning is probably not a good idea because I contemplate all these solutions or scenarios in my mind. Mm. I think being on the streets and having the privilege to go inside the parliament anytime I want to as a member of the parliament would be the best case scenario. Not the street only and not the parliament only, but bridging between the two while we also have the power to demand what we want and at the same time keep our foot in because we don't want them to give, we don't want to give it away. So it'll be more like a protest within parliament until the end. That protest could... on in the streets and then go in the parliament whenever it's needed. Thank you for letting me go down that road because <laughs> it's not easy for me to ask you if you'd be willing to resign and protest too. So thank you for letting me ask you that question. Um, I just don't want names like yours burned for no reason. The good people that are in Lebanese politics today, I think are the first that get burned in the process. The bad ones are the ones that win next round. And that's why I never like to see friends that I know are in it for the right reasons get blamed for things that are beyond their control, and then maybe they don't win next round. And I think it's an unfair, but a real likelihood, a lot of the 13 would not win again, but it's not their fault. That paradigm, I'm going to leave it to the side for now. No, we can stop on here. We can stop in here and say that if you read history and you read, you know, you understand or you reflect on people who came after the revolution, you see that this, you know, people who come after the revolution are usually eaten up by the revolution. Mm. And this is not something only unique to Lebanon. Mm. It has happened to many people 
in the world. And so being eaten up by our own self, by our own revolution, is a possible scenario. I don't like to compare everything to Iran, but that's exactly what happened in Iran in 1979. Yeah. And we know the winners of that story. I suppose it's not an accident. It could be the same winners today. So I, you know, this is one scenario. Another scenario is that we were able to bridge between the street and the parliament, like I said. Mm. That will be a very nice scenario. Yeah. But one of the scenarios that we cannot forget and we cannot ignore, because history has proven this, that we might be eaten up by the revolution and like you're saying, would be the people who cannot come back. Let's do our best to prevent that from happening. And let me ask you, is there a way to prevent it from happening? <laughs> by, by going down the road, which is not, it's talked about endlessly, but it still matters. I mean, that's why, in effect, that's why you're sleeping in parliament, is to get a president in Baabda. No, no, it's to respect the Constitution. You're right. I misspoke. Mm -hmm. But that Constitution includes getting a president yes. to Baghdad. Yes. You're yes. right. Yes. You've, you've said it in different ways that you're there to make sure the process works, but I know that you're also not there to get a bad president into Baghdad. The two statements can be true, yes. and I think they are true. I want your take on this. I speak to all types of people to try to gauge what they think. It'd be an honor to ask you. I see Syria's return. What I see is the unfortunate scenario where politics doesn't prevent bad guys from winning. Security, a different security machine gets involved and becomes the gatekeeper to all types of bad things. And I'll go back in time. When that regime next door is in trouble, it causes problems here. When that regime is getting a foothold, it's usually getting a foothold through here. And I see that path as something that is likely, which is Suleiman Frenji enters Baabda. And if he enters Baabda, it's not that the Syrian regime enters Baabda, it's not that. We'll never have Syrian soldiers in Lebanon again. I think that will never happen. But their allies seem very keen on accessing power. And that becomes both an alliance and an opposition to Hezbollah and Iran. Security regimes that are delineating the terms in Lebanon. And that's really the death of politics, where it doesn't matter who's in parliament anymore. And that's recent history, too. That's the 1990s. That's the Lebanon I grew up in. And I see that as happening. I'd like to take see what you think about that and whether or not Suleiman Frenji is still an inevitable conclusion. Yes, history is very important. Is your is the bodyguard filming this on Instagram Live? Oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> It'll be on the podcast later. <laughs> La, he's not doing it live, is he? Oh, it's not live. Oh, just pictures. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, okay. I wanna I wanna explain the process first, and how I think about it, and then link it mm. to what you're saying. In and you know, in an ideal world, in a democratic country, we'd have a parliament, 
a ministerial cabinet and a judiciary system. Those are the three main pillars of a government, a democratic government. The parliament's job is to do political monitoring of the ministerial cabinets, and the judiciary system needs to be separate. So the parliament monitors the cabinet, the ministerial cabinets, and the judiciary system monitors everyone, and we have separation of power. That's in a very, you know, in a democratic process. Yeah. What happened in Lebanon, they created what they call consensus democracy, a democratia attawafuqiyya. And what it means is that the conventional parties who were warlords, they had, they create, you know, they elected a parliament. But then they said, you know what, we want to be in the cabinet. So let's put our people in the ministerial cabinet. So which means they broke the wall that should have been between the parliament and the cabinet. No separation of power right there. They broke it. And they created a mini parliament in the cabinet. Hmm. And they put their guys also in the judiciary system. And now the judges became their bodyguards instead of being the monitors of this. So they really killed the whole democratic process. So this consensus democracy is not a democracy anymore. All right? It's an apparent democracy that, you know, that for, you know, strengthened the role of the dictators or what we call them the club of five. And then they said, okay, our ministers are in the cabinet. We have to agree on everything, otherwise nothing will happen. And if we don't agree, we veto it at Tiltil Mu'attil. So they created a system called vetocracy. I don't like it, I veto it, nothing happens. We all like it on how we're going to divide our share. Let's take one, you take this, I take that, and then we divide it. I think it's fascinating. The only years we didn't have that were 2005 to 2008. And that government was deemed illegitimate by the party that wanted to reestablish national unity and guaranteed a third veto blockage through violence and getting it in Doha. It's Crazy. Exactly. It's so crazy. Doha is the place where they actually uh, stamped on this consensus democracy yeah. and killed the Taif. That's well said. Okay. So now we live. Okay. So let me uh, continue the image yeah. here. So they created this vetocracy power in the ministers. But with the ministers come the dealers or the contractors. So now what they have is they divide their shares and the shares go to their own contractors. And who the, those contractors are very well connected in the government. They have on their payroll or the public servants. And so what happened is 
they created a whole corrupt system. They created a systemic corrupt corruption. A systemic corruption means you go do anything in the government, they don't listen to you. Why? Because they report to the to the vitocracy system. And we become part of this systemic corruption because if we want to do something, we have to bribe. And then they say it's Lebanon. No, it's not Lebanon. It's a systemic corruption that they have created. So we are all trapped in this corrupt cage. And now, if these people remain in power, all the scenarios that you have listed are going to remain circ- circulating. We, we are all going to continue living on those, in those cycles, nothing to break. Because the system itself is corrupt from the director general all the way to the doorman. So in other Everything. words, there's a likelihood that he, re- he becomes president. Anything but, can happen, you know, all of these things can yeah. happen because, because the lords, the dictators are still there and we are just, you know, smashed under the system, you know, or trapped in this cycle. So what we're trying to do or say in the parliament, we don't believe in this cycle. We want out of this cycle and we want to break this cycle. The problem is, They ridiculed us enough and they sealed us off enough so that people did not hear our voice. They did not listen. They did not understand why we're in. You see? And, and, and when we say we don't believe in your apparent democracy or your consensus democracy, and we're calling for a democracy so that you can come and vote for a president, of course, they're not going to accept it because what we're telling them All your system has to change, you see? So if we continue with those club members and if the system is going to continue with consensus democracy, then Akid Slamian Franji is going to come and Akid, all of these, you know, rulers are going to stay. And if it is to their benefit to bring Syria, they will bring Syria. And if it is to their benefit to bring Iran, they'll bring Iran and so on and so forth. So in order for us To really get out of this, we really need to break their system. And to break their system, we have the only way is the non-violent approach to say, we have a constitution, we need an independent judiciary system, and we have to start talking about it. If we don't talk about it, they think we're okay. We're happy. <laughs> we're happy. Cheers, everybody. We're, we're drinking, we're eating, we're, we're, we're studying. So they, they think we're good. You, you took a bold decision because there was a lot of pushback. It took time to make that happen, but you were compromising to try to form what felt like could be a majority by naming Michel Mawad. That was not an easy decision, but you took it. Forget whether or not people like him or don't. Forget his chances or not. Doesn't matter. You saw an avenue for change in opposition to at least agree on something, and you went with it. You're not the only one that did. There's a few from the change MPs that did, but it's a few. And the conversations you still have, if you have them, with fellow MPs that came from the same cloth, October 17. The fact that 
his name now seems remote. And the fact that Frenchie, for the most part, not always, seems to be a viable option. At least sometimes he seems more viable to people that should know better, like France. But it doesn't matter. He's still not there. Is there any discussion on a third candidate? And if there is, is it simply the same ones that went through the, what's that phrase, the uh, the churning wheel? I forgot the phrase where it's the three names that came and went earlier. The ones that we know, Salah Nin, or Sam Khalifa, that kind of crowd. Or is there someone else that's being thrown out? A name that seems more viable? I'm curious where that actual process is at the moment. Because I I don't know why I still see Frenji as the de facto next president. And the third candidate never really materialized. It's again the system. We're all trapped in the system of the the, the club of five. And these people are not going to bring a candidate that is going to deal with the crisis. These people are going to bring a candidate that will extend their lives, that will extend their system, that will strengthen their system. We have to break the system. I don't believe, you know, all of this talk about another name is a waste of time. That's well said. Thank you, Najat On Saliba. Thank you for saying that. Do you say that to your fellow MPs? That yes. What do they say in return? I mean, at least Milham and I agree that, you know, the broken, the, the systemic corruption is there and we're trapped in it. And all we thought we think about is how to break this, how to break this cycle. That's all we think about. It's not the president. And that's why I'm saying our sit-in is not about naming or electing a president. It's about regaining our democracy, regaining the constitution, regaining the state of law, and not have and not continue accepting this consensus democracy. We want the ta'if to be implemented. We want the constitution to be respected and not the apparent democracy or the fake democracy that they want us to live in. I couldn't say it better myself. I think it's odd that not all change MPs are able to speak the same language. And I think it's a shame. And I think that majority alliance rested on them being willing to go down the same road you went it's an, a very unpleasant road, but you did it. You did it. I, I don't know why they're not able to do it. Unless they're betting on jobs with Sleiman Frenji, which to me means they're on the wrong side of history. Now, I don't want to speak ill of maybe common friends of ours, but I don't know any other reason why they're unable to follow that path. You know, when I made the decision, I was told that it's a political suicide. And I tell you, this is the best thing that happened to me during this past year. Can we give her a round of applause for that? Yeah.
There'll be time for Q&A. I want to go down one more path with you before that. Um, we've covered a lot of terrain. It seems like the essence of October 17 is really a bottom-up initiative to try to rebuild the state despite all the regional complications in Lebanon. Its inception is the Ustink movement. Its tentacles go back to civil society in 2005. And you reflect that old journey, beginning at AUB until tonight. The municipal elections, the fact that they're not happening or they may be delayed or they're, no, sorry, they are delayed. I don't know if it's any date that's been set. I don't think so. Do you still see that sort of terrain as essential and complementary to what you're doing in Parliament. I see local governance as as paralyzed as national governance, and I see the decay happening in a way that's unanticipated, where it's completely ungovernable from top to bottom. So do you hold out any optimism, if you will, for municipal elections and what they can do? I want to go back to this consensus democracy. So we talked about the ministers and their dealers. But on the payroll, there is the public schools, there is the teachers, there is the public hospitals, and there is the municipalities. Mm. So we are all in the same system. And so when funding agencies come and say, oh, we want to rescue Lebanon. They say, okay, we want to work with the government. They go to the government. Ah, You're giving us money. Of course, we will love you. So then they found out, oh, no, the government is corrupt. We don't want to deal with the government. They go down to the public hospitals and the public schools. Ah, of course, they're part of the big guy. So we're all in one cycle. And the reason why they wanted to postpone the municipal election or uh, extend the current mandate is because they did some tests, you know, some, some, mm. you know, and they found out that some of the people or some of their guys might not make it the right. next time. Yeah. And so they trapped us again. Again, I mean, that's why we have to stay in the parliament to make their life difficult as we're doing it. But we also need to start mobilizing people on the streets and say, we need a constitution. We need a constitution. And we need to apply Taif. And unless we bridge between the two, they are going to keep us in the cage. So mobilization includes the push for municipal elections, that kind of protest I, for, for elections. I mean, how, what does it really okay, look like? Uh, you know that I've been working on the ground on grassroots mobilization and empowerment for mm. the last 15 years. Yeah, if not longer. If not longer. And I did a lot. But now that I know how they act on the top, mm. the more you feed the grassroots, the more you empower them. Mm. So, so you're good. They clap you on the back and you say, oh, you're doing something good for my village. That's very good. Why? Because the head of the municipality is their, is their guy. Right. So you're making their guy look good. So no matter what you do, 
they are there to benefit from it. So that's why municipal election or not, unless those top regime, you know, those top leaders shake their ground, unless we shake their ground, nothing at the grassroots is going to change. So then a final question before the break. How do you do that, given that mass mobilization took half the country to the street and the only person that exited the stage was Saad Haridi? Exactly. So what, what does that mean? They were a club of six. Now there are there five. But, but I'm trying to see what would a protest do now? It's impossible to imagine at least 10,000 showing up. It's going to be a few thousand at most. What does that really do? We need to ask not for people to go. We need to ask for the Constitution to be respected, irrelevant, irrespective of the people. So mass mobilization is not protest only. Is it boycott? It's everything we can do. We have to have a clear roadmap. We can't just throw ourselves on the streets. We need to get organized and we need to get focused and we need to know what we're asking them to do. The reason I went down the road of resignation earlier was trying to link that to that kind of boycott. Is there something like that that you imagine where people don't recognize the legitimacy of the state anymore? How does it? We have to we have to think about this. I don't want to throw ideas that no. are not well thought of. Yeah. It's not the time to just spontaneously react. We need to be smarter about it. This regime is very, very smart. They know how to co-op the narrative. They know how to shut us down on the streets. We have to act smarter and we have to act with a strategy. We can't just think that by shouting loud, we can stop them. Imagine that these people built empires. They're not going to give it to us for free. It's going to require from all of us a lot of thinking, a lot of planning and a lot of strategy before we can get to topple this regime down. I'll ask one more time and we can end it here. Can you give me a flavor of what that looks like to you? Because what I see is... Next time. Next time? I hope the next time we speak, it's really about what you're suggesting because that's new. That's fresh. I haven't heard that from anyone. Order whatever you'd like. And once again, a round of applause to Najat Ansariba. So let's start the Q&A. There's a microphone for the audience. Uh, please, two favors. Take advantage of this occasion because it's not every day we get to speak to Najat. And ask whatever you'd like, just appropriately. Don't throw anything. Is there anyone that wants to ask a question up front? I heard questions outside, but I'll put people on the spot now. The gentleman in the front. 
And if you could just introduce yourself, who you are, and what NGO you work for. <laughs> Hello, I'm uh, Patrick Asad. I'm urban planner and architect. Oh. I used to work with uh, Upload, urban planning and local authority development. It's a firm in Beirut. Uh, I was working on different projects uh, in urban uh, urban projects in Lebanon. You'll like next week's guest, Hamad Shama. Yes. He's Beirut Urban Lab. Yes, and Lorient Lejour is also. Lorient Lejour, exactly. Yes, yeah. We'll try to, to attend. Uh, my, my question now is about, uh, more about politics, that what, what we were talking about. Uh, I would like to ask about uh, consensus democracy that you, are, uh, you have tackled many times in your uh, uh, now in the meeting. Uh, do, you, do you think it is an issue? The issue is uh, apl- in applying the institution or is the issue it is, it is in, in the system itself or in the institution itself? We, and we have to try to find something else uh, like uh, f- federalism or other system in Lebanon. So where is the problem in consensus democracy? Is it the, is, uh, how we apply our institution or, or it is the problem in the institution itself? Consensus democracy does not apply the, any constitution. It's an agreement between, between the club members. They agree on things and if they don't agree, they veto. So consensus democracy is not written in the constitution. So there is a lot of talks in the country that it's not, it's not the president that we need to change. It's the whole, the whole constitution. Okay, that could be one thing. But let's apply a constitution first. Prove that we can follow a constitution first. Two, think about another constitution. But so far, so far, Not one president has been elected democratically. Not one decision has been made without the influence of foreign states. Can you imagine that right now, 126 members of the parliaments are waiting, are waiting for five members of states to meet and agree on a president without our presence in the meeting. Mm -hmm. This is very demeaning for us. Mm -hmm. This is really says a lot. How do we dare talking about another form of constitution if we're not able to go inside the parliament and elect a president democratically? This says a lot about the inefficiency ineptitude, incapability of this, those leaders to make any decision. Once they make right, the right decisions, then I will be willing to entertain what they are suggesting. Mm-hmm. The Ta'if is a very, very good constitution that took a lot of time to prepare and to approve. We have not applied a small bit of it. How could we talk about new constitutions if the current ones we were, were not applied? Maybe it, can, it cannot be applied. This is the reason. I don't agree. Everything can be applied and then tested. In fact, in fact, 
all laws in the world go through a process. You put them, you test them, you apply, you monitor, you reiterate, and you improve. This is the normal process. You cannot refute something after you have spent so much time to prepare before you apply it, you test it, you monitor, and then you can re reassess. This is the normal process in everything. Even in your design, this is what you do. So why do we apply normal processes on everything except when it comes to our constitution? Actually, I'd like to ask you a question in return. When you said you hinted at other forms of governance, did you see consensus and power sharing as different things? In other words, power sharing the way Lebanon exists, the Christian Muslim power sharing stuff versus paralysis, paralyzed consensus. Do you see a difference between them? No, I see it's the same. Same. So I heard you whisper federalism. True. Could you elaborate on that? What What were you? Well, um, maybe. Uh, maybe I'm not sure about uh, if it is the right uh, solution in Lebanon, the federalism. But it is a system that we can uh, we can discuss it, and it may be more uh, uh, efficient than uh, the one we are applying now. Uh, there is a reason. There is some some reason. Maybe it, it could help. But it, it needs a lot of uh, thinking and a lot of analysis and uh, surveys mm. to find the, ri the right, uh, the right uh, constitution or the right system. When you're bored out of your mind, you should look up an episode I did with Hisham Bou Nassif on MTV. It's mm -hmm. a different podcast. I think you would enjoy it. Of course. It's an hour and a half on that. Yes, of course. He was about to punch me in the face, but I MTV protected me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. It was a civil debate, but it got the temperature went up a bit. So the next question goes to a superstar who hasn't asked one question yet in the entire experience I've done here. I want to introduce her. The first, the reason I got to meet Najat was actually at Cafe Scientifique here, some five years ago or so, I think maybe as the protest started or right before, maybe four years ago, thanks to this lovely space, Alias. So I met you. I met my first co-host here as well. Her name was Elia Haber. Yeah. She organized Cafe Scientific. We went to Martyrs Square and recorded 30 episodes live there. That relationship is from Alias. I didn't know all of this. <laughs> Neve and William. I guess William is not here tonight. Ha, ha. I was in. I turned that occasion down. I, said, <laughs> I was invited to that event. I said, no, no, I'm doing an episode with you. Uh, yourself, Neve, and William offered me to do this podcast here live. That's a very long way of saying thanks to you for giving us this space in Beirut, for rebuilding it after the blast, and for also turning on the AC tonight. <laughs> so the mic's for you. Okay, so I've never, I've never asked a question before, and I may disclose my, my ignorance of how Lebanese, the Lebanese constitution works, despite having lived here for over a decade. But, as I understand it, there is a written Lebanese constitution, correct? 
course. And in that constitution, a president can only be elected by the members of parliament, correct? That's correct. And these two things, we haven't violated that rule yet, right? So the issue with the constitution at the moment that you have in parliament is that Berry keeps restarting the clock every time there's a new electoral session for the president, meaning that the first round vote has to garner a two-thirds majority to name a president, and then when it fails to do that, before it can go to a second round vote, everybody walks out, meaning that uh, quorum is lost and the session ends, and we restart again. My question is, if, if Barry woke up tomorrow morning in a far more agreeable mood than he's been for the last six months and said, okay, we'll do an electoral session and we'll keep the vote open. Could you elect a candidate that you would agree with, with a 50% plus one, like a simple majority as is required? Would that be possible? And if so, would you personally and the forces of change block agree to that, push forward, even if it wasn't the, the most ideal candidate, in order to get to the point where there is a president in Babda and you can move on to the next stage of solving the inertia that's you know, paralyzed the system at the moment by appointing a fully empowered cabinet, however slow that might be, and however imperfect that cabinet might be, but in the hope that maybe someone within it could actually start moving forward within the system that exists or do you think that it has to be radical and the entire house needs to be torn down and rebuilt from the bottom up <laughs> you should ask more questions more often <laughs> well first of all i don't know if you were here when i thanked alia for really reviving the spirit and everything it's really it's really heartwarming thank you so much for doing all of these efforts for beirut and for the residents of beirut really um, this is not, a, I don't have a simple answer, yes or no. If the democratic process is respected and there are no hidden agenda and we have at least three candidates or two, not one, to democratically elect, I totally agree with you that we should all be in the parliament tomorrow and have open sessions and continuous sessions until a president is elected. That's the democratic process, and we should all respect it. If, if everything is done properly, yes. So that's the answer. However, if they want to force a democratic process on us, meaning they have secured 65, for their own candidate and come and pretend to do a government, to do an election under the pretext of democracy, I will not attend. Can we move you into Babda? <laughs> I will not go. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. I saw a question. There's two, actually. There's three. Okay, so let's start with uh, the gentleman in the back. Wait, sure. And just if you could introduce yourself, who you are, what you do. 
Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Tanner. I'm a longtime listener, first time question asker. Um, but my question is... That's your uh, job? <laughs> tonight well, it is. Tonight it is. Uh, in the run-up to the election and during the electoral period, I heard a lot of people talk about their intention not to vote. Just they were hopeless. They don't think it's going to result in any change. And so they didn't see the point in the exercise of voting. And now that there's a new parliament, I hear people talk about how MPs that are really reform-minded and really want change, uh, how they would be best serving their cause by stepping down uh, and leaving the parliament. So my question is, do you think that this is ever a valid strategy? Uh, and if so, at what point would this be something that should be considered? for those MPs that want systemic change in Lebanon? Thank you for this question. I think during election, the media made it all impossible for people to believe that a change is going to happen. And they were always discrediting and putting doubts in the minds of people that your vote is going to go to waste because you're betting on change MPs. And all the polls and the predictions were saying we could have five or six maximum, never ever predicted 13. Just because it was, it was directed towards changing the minds of people and making them believe that they should not be electing new people. And if someone told me this when I was outside the system, I probably wouldn't have believed it. But now, sorry, now that I'm inside the events, the event making, I see what happens inside the parliament and I see how the news is told in the evening. I say, my God, this is not the same news I heard during the day. <laughs> so, so the news is completely changed. And the emphasis is never on us. Whenever it's negative, the emphasis will be on us. But whenever we do something something positive, they change it or they don't talk about it. So this is intentional. That's the first part of the question. The second part, I said during the course of the discussion that I don't think we should resign. But definitely we need the help of the people in a strategic and very organized way, because they are very, very smart, not to throw ourselves on the streets without a clear roadmap and a clear ask in order for us together to work towards a major change. We have started the change, but it's not enough. We really need to tackle the change from many, many angles, and one of them would be strategically targeting special requests or special asks in order for us to start accumulating small gains one at a time. I saw several other hands earlier. Oh, okay. Let's actually the at the front. Let's go start, and we can move back. Yeah. Hello, uh, my name is Pascal Asad. Uh, I have more than ten years of experience in implementing and developing international projects. So I would like to ask Dr. Najat uh, about uh, how do you think the role of NGOs 
and the civil society or how, how do you assess the role uh, of NGOs in the environmental sector? And do you think uh, they are uh, compensating uh, the role of the state and the Ministry of Environment? They can be an added value to help the Ministry of Environment. Uh, they can play a major role in incubating or spreading, raising awareness, especially in circular economy, which is the business or the entrepreneurship of the future. But they cannot replace the government. So there is a fine line between doing the job of the government or promoting new ideas and empowering youth and local communities. So we always have to be careful. And I give an example. I worked like Fondation Diana, like many other CSOs and NGOs on waste management in villages. Yes, we can help in collecting recyclables. Yes, we can help in making compost. No, we cannot help in solving the waste problem. Right? So that's very important because no matter how powerful and how much money the NGOs have, they cannot create landfills. They cannot get rid of the RDFs. It's not the job of the municipality alone. It is a state work. So we have to know where li the limitation of the NGOs is and we have to know where to hit, to hit efficiency, efficiently. And we have to be complementary to the work of the government. Never think that we can replace the government. And that's the role of, of the government, is basically to direct the NGOs to do the right work where they need help most. So we have to be very careful. Okay? One more thing. When I was in Geneva, one of the chief officers for human rights said one thing very important. He said, with all the NGOs in Lebanon, we don't hear them in the General Assembly talking about human rights issues in Lebanon. They're not on the international map. They're not there to tell us what needs to be done. And NGOs are given the opportunity to talk in General Assembly. They are given the opportunity to hold side events which are very important for the people in the UN. And our NGOs, he said, are not present. This is something that we, this is something that we all, you as, as young people need to think about. The world does not revolve around Lebanon. We are only a very, very smart, small part of the world. We have to get we have to get on the international agenda, not the international agenda gets to the agenda, to the Lebanon's agenda. This is very, very important. We have to know that we're small. We have to know that we need to reach out. We have to know that we have to extend our horizon and our way of thinking out and to be alongside other NGOs internationally and never, never think that the others are going to come to us. It's in the contrary. And that's why, that's why even as a parliamentarian, I don't think as me being focused only on the problems in Lebanon, 
I focus on how parliamentarians in Lebanon can reach out to others outside Lebanon. And I learned that there is something called International Parliamentarian Unit where democratic parliamentarians support each other worldwide. And that's very important. So we need to be out there. We need to talk. We need to make connections. We need to get to know how they think and how they solve their problems because there is always lessons learned and cautionary tales and exchanges that are that really create a lot of shortcuts for us. It's very important. We always, you know, we always have parliamentarians who think that, you know, he's a parliamentarian, he's the center of the world. No, we're not the center of the world. We can go back one by one. Uh, so was it both? Yeah. And a lovely uh, member of Umam, where Monica <laughs> is. Yes. Well, my name is Elena. I'm doing an internship at Umam. I, I'm not uh, speaking on behalf of Monica, uh, who can't be with us today, unfortunately. But that's so yeah. professional. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> so uh, yeah, my question would be: um, What reactions do you get from the public, from Lebanese citizens, on a grassroots basis? Um, like especially for calling out the government um, for their obvious failure in any way. So, yeah, are the options split? And if so, which groups give you what kind of feedback? Um, you already said that the press uh, didn't really react um, on your attempt to yeah, bring it on an international level. So where do you see your alliances and uh yeah like maybe my question also like attempts to like just hope that you're not alone on your way because um yeah it's a very brave path and it's a path that can't be taken alone so yeah maybe you can answer on a national level but also on an international level yeah thank you for the question Uh, one thing I have to be fair to the press, as you know, in the few days at the beginning of the sit-in, they saw something new, they covered it. But then there were no more scoops to give. And so they stopped, they stopped covering, you know, our sit-in because it became part of everybody's the daily life. So there is nothing new to report. At the international level, Also, there is a huge interest in what we're doing because they think it's bold, they think it's interesting, and they like, you know, they appreciate the call for respecting the Constitution and the democratic values and principles. Here, I want to thank Adnan, uh, who is a, an international journalist and who wrote about the sit-in for several times. Thank you, Adnan. Uh, Actually, could I add to that? It's a recent piece in the national interest. Everyone should check out. So it's just, uh, remind me of the title of the piece. It's on the national interest. So look it up if you haven't already. So, so the press is usually looking for new things to, to cover. And at the same time, like I said, I mean, there, there is so many, so many things to cover on a daily basis here. Now, having said that, we really need to get more organized. 
I mean, if you come to me now and you tell me how can I help, I t- I'll tell you I don't know. That's the problem. It's my shortcoming as well. So we really need to get more organized. We really need to define the pillars that we're going to work with. And then when somebody comes and says, okay, I believe in the cause, how can I help? I would be able to answer him, you know, in a very clear way. Right now, I can't yet. So it was still in the making. I had to explore. I had to talk to parliamentarians, UN officials. I had to do all of this. And now we are at this stage, like I said to Ronnie at the end of his questions, that there are questions that I would like to answer a bit later, if you just give me time. So I guess that my question is... Uh, who, who are you and what do you I'm do? I'm Flavia. I'm just a passionate about um, Lebanese politics. <laughs> and um, I have two questions. One picks up on the difference between uh, uh, consensus democracy and uh, constitutionalism. Because if you go back to the literature on constitutionalism, we have that actually mutual veto is an inherent component of constitutionalism. So I was wondering, what do you mean by uh, consensus democracy and in which way is it different from what is uh, in, the, in the Lebanese constitution? This is one, the, the first question that I had. And also another question maybe is uh, among those questions that you wanted to ask like at a later stage, because I was wondering about the strategies for achieving political change. You didn't seem that um, hopeful in uh, municipal elections, not even in uh, grassroots organizing, because you, like going back to the process, right? Like in your process, now going to the parliament, it seems like that you experiencing, having a direct experience of how Lebanese politics work and parliamentary works, work works. Uh, it's like you think that like the toolbox should be somehow revised. So I was wondering whether there, there are some new, some new ideas on how to achieve political change and how the strategies that were uh, mentioned, for instance, in the elect- electoral campaign in Taqaddum, like elections, grassroots organizing, like how this changed. So going back to the process, how this looks like today. Okay, I'm going to start with the, with the grassroots change because, you know, this is something that I researched and I worked with and I love because, you know, working with, the, with the, the local community, you create agents, you create agents of change, you empower, you see the transformation happening. It's beautiful. Uh, and it's nice, but how much... Do you really empower the local community when the system is crumbling on their head? That's a, that's a big question. So, no, I mean, I am totally with transformational actions and grassroots empowerment. And I think it's both. It's top, bottom, and bottom up. And it cannot be done with one way versus, you know, it cannot be done with one way only. It has to come from both. So... Empowering local communities is something that is beautiful and without it and without the support of the local community, I don't think we can, we can make the change at the top. So that definitely is the most important part. That's why I say we stay in the parliament, but we also reach out to the community and we do the work, you know, together. So the 
overall strategy is clear. Now, what exactly do we need to do on the ground? This is something that we have to co-create together once I see that some people are interested in this. So I cannot create for everybody what they need to do. I prefer that this becomes a participatory way of creating things. Now, in terms of consensus democracy, this is different than vetoing a decision, right? So you have the right to, 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 to veto a decision if you don't agree with it. But consensus democracy is agreeing on the shares, meaning that any project that comes to be implemented, they divide the shares among them. And that's the problem. That's consensus democracy, right? And not too long ago, a few years ago, they divided the shares. A group took the waste management problem. Another group took the dams problem. They built dams left and right. Another group was taking the quarries and the beaches and all the, you know, they, they took all the lands that is, that is supposed to be free for anybody. So they really divided the shares among them. And, and whenever they don't agree on the share, they veto it. So that's vetocracy. That's different than constitutionally having the right to vote, to veto. I'll ask two quick questions in, in lieu of this. Uh, maybe the first one's not that important, but it's, I, I'd like to know. Are you still in Takaddo? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just, okay, so that, but Takaddo exists mostly just with one MP at the moment. Okay. Second question consensus. Is it fair to say that consensus on national issues is still worthy, meaning issues that have to do with, could even be making the case for a neutral foreign policy? That is, I think, at the end of the day, still consensus-driven. In other words, that might not directly match with democracy, but it's still something that should be achieved and it does require at least most people coming to terms with it. So is there some differentiation there? Yeah, there is nothing, nothing like, okay, if I don't like it, we have the third to, to veto everything. Right. So that's part of the consensus democracy, right? Yeah. But agreeing on a good project for the country and for the benefit of people, agreeing on this is, is excellent. So that's different. So the word itself yeah. is not, it's just, it's abuses bad rather than right the it's vetocracy thing. rather than consensus democracy right but then they call it democracy yeah. they call it consensus democracy but in fact it's it's the other way around it's, it's forced national unity yeah it's forced national it's forced national not unity divide. Uh, thank you yeah forced <laughs> national disunity <laughs> So I want to just go back to Takadum so that I'm not I'm not uh, understood wrong. Uh, people in Takadum are my friends and we've worked together for a long time. So it's not like I have anything against them. We're still friends and I still respect what they did and they have helped. You know, we ran the elections together. 
It's just that for the sit-in, I took the decision on my own and I believed it was a good decision for me politically and and also it just gives me, like I said, some uh, type of boldness to reject what they are imposing on me. So this is not the decision of Taqadum, this is my decision. So whether we say I am not or I am in Taqadum, it yeah. doesn't mean that I... They're not my friends anymore, or I am in disagreement with them. We have time for two more questions. Mr. George Wardini. I want to thank you for the clarification you made uh, regarding the question that uh, that uh, the the lady asked you. Sorry, I forgot to continue. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm really glad you got to clarify this regarding, because I remember that there was a... Um, Uh, event one day in front of parliament and you were asked if you would boycott a session that was sure to produce uh, Slaymin Fraji and the answer you gave back then might have been misinterpreted and I'm glad you got to clarify this position and I uh, really believe that this should be uh, to your credit and it should be put out there and I will make sure that we will cover this as well the the way you you said it. during your um, description of the uh, state of uh, corruption in Lebanon, I think we perhaps forgot to acknowledge that on top of all of this systemic corruption, there's an additional layer, which by itself probably is even bigger, where I believe that corruption and uh, the, you know, the the militia and the mafia nexus, I believe that the mafia is the junior partner in this alliance and not the major partner. And as long as um, uh, as long as uh, it enjoys the protection of the largest militia in the world, with a billion-dollar budget uh, and a global network of terrorism and drug dealing, I don't see there's that there's anything that we can do, uh, unless we uh, perhaps create a counter uh, militia, which I don't think this is our type of thing. So, uh, uh, how do you believe that your work would have been different? had this extra layer of protection not existed, or do you believe that it would have been the same challenge? Thanks. Uh, Can I disagree with you and say that we don't need a militia to be strong? Okay, a lot of uh, movements in the world have won and have toppled regimes in non-violence resistance. And it's a science. It's not something that I'm dreaming of. I researched it and I know that a lot of successful uh, initiatives and movement have have really made it uh, to the top and to reach their ultimate goal by non-violent resistance. So if we can create a non-violent movement that is so strong that really believes in the sovereignty of the country and in the state of law, and that we all human on this country and on this land want to live in dignity, I think we are very strong. And I believe our strength cannot be defeated. But Najat, I can't help but disagree with the disagreement. That was called March 14, 2005. Exactly. I did a post on Sunday where in the three years until Doha, from March to May, March 2005, May 2008, a dozen assassinations, successful and attempted, I forgot 
all the other bombings that were happening as scare tactics. Junie, Kastik, Ashrafi, Verzan, I forgot about them. Paralysis, sit-ins, delegitimization, violence on the streets of Beirut. That is exactly what you're describing. I completely agree with the necessity. I also know that when you go down that road in Lebanon, you end up with the bra- bravest of Lebanese politicians that are no longer with us. So is there a case to be made that this is beyond our control? I, I share the belief in what has to be done, but I don't think we can do it non-violently. Violence is not an option. There's no violent solution to this mess. But a non-violent effort that at least reimagines Lebanon's role and Lebanese and what they should be doing in sending that message that we are completely hijacked by this problem. I heard you doing that abroad, but it shouldn't just be you. It should be every damn MP doing this all the time. It should be the bravest of thinkers and strategists pushing for that effort because it'll be another assassination. The moment someone goes down that road, they'll get killed. Hezbollah is not afraid. Hezbollah is comfortable with where they are. They're not afraid of this discussion. They don't care what we say about them. They don't care about what we do unless we touch on the issue you just described. Then they pay attention. So that's what I mean. You You can't do it here. How do we do it abroad effectively? It's one one of many, again. Hmm. It's one of many. That's the message that we got, and that's the message that we started with. It should be a strategy of so many tentacles, so many approaches, and it has to go all in harmony with each other. Hmm. So this requires thinking. And I said, the beast in front of us is very smart. They have, They have been there for long, and they know how to adopt our narrative. Mm. They know how to kill the protesters on the street. They know how to make us worry and afraid. They know they do it because it's their survival and it's their existence that is at stake. Mm. We definitely have to outsmart them. How? We have to collectively work together. I don't have the answer alone, Mm. but I'm willing to think together for as long as it takes to get out of there. Sorry if I hijacked the question there, but you know, we can do one more question. Mr. Adnan Nasir. Rani Shatha, thank you so much. And Alayas, thank you for hosting this every Wednesday. One quick question, Najat. Something that has always interested me and quite annoyed me is the fact that after everyone did their job to elect new MPs that were not part of the establishment, it was almost, it seemed immediately, you guys couldn't come together to come up with a mechanism of cooperation. And I would have thought at this point, on the question of the presidency, there would have been much more urgency to come up with this mechanism. I know you're ready to do it. I know Melhem is and probably Mark Dow. But how come you have not been able to achieve this? I think it's too... It's too unfair to say we could not come together. Uh, We had disagreements, but we never disagreed on something that uh, that is of benefit to the country. You don't think agreeing on a single name would be beneficial to the country? I mean, the name the name of the president, even if we agreed on a name, it's going to be 12 votes. 
not more. So, so yes, we could have agreed on a name and we could have created a, a mechanism by which we can elect, you know, we can select a name. I'm not saying we didn't make mistakes, but all I'm saying is I believe in the goodness of all these 12 MPs and none of them can make something that is evil or to their, to, you know, to, to not help the country. And if we call them change MPs, it's because they all are willing to go the extra mile to help the country. That's for sure. Now, we have not created a mechanism to work together, it's true. Not because, not because we didn't want to, it's because it was too difficult at the beginning. Coming out of an election that was already very difficult, and then facing all the challenges, and at the same time getting together some people or most of the people who were elected, I did not them before. So I had to get to know them. I had to get to know how they think and why they think the way they think. And at the same time, you know, for be forced to work with them from day one because this is what the people wanted. So it was difficult. I didn't think the people, I don't think the people are not demanding something fair. It's fair, but we did not, it was too difficult for us to do it at the beginning. I think going from now on, it's going to be different. It's going to be different? Yeah. Thank you. So there's one more follow-up question. You can do it quickly, Mr. George Wardini, very quickly. Uh, just be, uh, just uh, uh, to build on uh, his question regarding the presidential elections, do you think had you agreed to... Uh, uh, go, uh, do you think had all of the change MPs agreed to uh, support Michel Maoud at some point earlier. Uh, Frangie's candidacy would have gained the same traction. I will rephrase my question. The only reason uh, Maoud was deemed unviable because it was almost certain that the change MPs will not vote for him. And it was always the justification that 43 or 42 is his peak and he cannot go higher. Thus, we need to find someone else. And in the time we spent uh, having this discourse, the other camp was able to uh, lobby for his candidate because it was seen as the only person who, who was viable. Do you think had Ma'awad, uh, and I'm not very excited personally about, about Ma'awad, it's not a personal agenda, but do you think had Ma'awad's traction and momentum continue to grow, uh, would have Frangie been uh, solidified as, as much as he is today? Okay, I'm going to answer this question, but I want to go back to, to Adnan's question just to be fair to the change MPs. I think the first time we discussed the three candidates, we agreed on one. But then when we approached this person, he said, no, don't advance my name yet because I don't want to burn it. So it's not true that we didn't agree on a name. We agreed on the first name. I think when we went down to the second and third name, this is when we didn't agree. To go back to Michel Maoud, I think four of us uh, put Michel Maoud's name on the ballot. So this means that we're left with eight who did not put it. So the best he can get is 44, plus eight is 52. They were not there. No, no, it's not true. It's not true. They were not there. So in this in this way, he had if 
all change MPs would have put their name, his name, it would have been 52 at the most. Even with that, I don't think Hezbollah and, and Amal are going to wait for, for us to elect this president. They would have broken the quorum even before we elect Michel Maouad. So this, this story of the change MP would have changed the whole situation is not true. When you get down to the numbers and see who and who put Michel Maouad's name and who did not, and who could have put and did not, I think the best of the best situation that you could have gotten is 52, not more. And with that, you know, this, this, will, this will mean that the other group will never allow this to happen. Could you just the microphone? The, yeah. It doesn't capture it on the recording. Yeah. Sorry, I'm being a bit of a devil's advocate, but at least then there would be clear lines for the battle and then there would be a, a certain alliance in parliament that, that has said, okay, we have done everything from our end. We have agreed. We have come forward with the name. Now, and this is where what you have been saying comes in, now we can go tell the international community that even after we have done everything we could possibly do, they still won't let us do. At least there would have been clearer lines for the battle, I believe. They will tell you you have 50 names. A friend of mine met with Durel. Durel is the second person after Macron, right? He told Durel and he, he asked him, why do you want to back up Slaymane Franji? You know what his answer was? Go get me 65 and come back and I'll, and I'll back up the others. So this is what they would say. Sorry, who's, who if, said that? If, if you say 65. He said that? Yeah. He said, so, so can you go that, say that again? You know, my friend was asking him, why are you backing up Slaymane Franji? You're asking the French. Why are you backing Franji? He's asking Durel. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then Durel said, this is the only, you know, part, uh, a candidate that can get 65. Mm. Go get me 65 from the other candidate and I back him up. So they always challenge you for whatever they have in mind. Najat? It's not true. Yani, if you get 52, it doesn't mean that they will accept it. Who, That's who, what are I'm the French, who are the French talking to in this country where they come up with the most bogus bullshit responses? Who do they speak to in this country? They're very arrogant. No, and no, that's let, their personality. No offense to the French. No no offense. Sorry, I apologize for up front. And we let them do it. I'm no, sorry. no, no. Who are they talking to where they get this bullshit answer? Are they look are they talking to people that want jobs with Frangia? Who who are they talking to? This is the this, dumbest response. This, okay. I mean no no not yours, not yours, the French. Sorry, not yours. I don't want to be misunderstood. They're they're towing the line. This is what they did with Hafiz in Lebanon. That's what I'm telling, and that's what I'm telling you. You can't, you can't do it. And you can't play with those numbers. They, they just get it's misleading. Either it's they misleading don't know what happened to Lebanon. Either they're so stupid they don't know what happened to Lebanon, or they're getting deceived. The only thing I can say, if all of us can get and rally around one candidate, I think we can get it. And it's a missed opportunity. Absolutely. And symbolic challenge to Frangie, 52 or 65, with or without those independent Sunnis, that it's not guaranteed they would say no. It's not guaranteed. They may say to, they may say yes to Frangie now. I don't know if they would say no to Michel Amawat if he had everyone else. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. But if the French are saying this, it means they're on the wrong side of history. Yeah. 
And that shows that they are either in bed with Assad's return to Lebanon, they are proactively doing this, or they get the worst advice from the most malicious Lebanese thinkers. Both are bad endings to France's role in Lebanon. Thank you for not going down that road. Too many of the better-intentioned MPs are eager to go down that road. You're not. I'm Lebanese, and I will remain. My decision will remain here and for here and from here. With that, a round of applause to Najat on Saliba. The next time we talk, we'll build on what you didn't say tonight, the tactics forward. I really mean it. From winning an election to being a very strong politician today, it means a lot to have you on the podcast. And sorry, go back to the, yes, just to, yeah. Um, if anyone doesn't follow Najat on Twitter, social media, please do that. I want to give a shout out to a few people in the room. First, Adnan Nasir. The only research I did tonight before coming here was reading your piece in the National Interest. Check it out. He's a talented writer. A shout out to Georges Verdini. Najat, if you ever want to do a Instagram collaboration, he's the guy. He's ethical. He's smart, catchy. He's young, dynamic, and he's very eager to be politically active. That this guy is going to become something later. He's a shining star. There are some talented researchers in the room. Flavia, a municipality expert I'm learning from. <laughs> and Esther from Umam, thank you for coming tonight. And actually, Patrick, thank you for sharing your thoughts today. I, I know that you listen to the podcast by what you're asking already. You'll like next week's episode. And to everyone else, Neve, especially Bob Gusson for coming again with his lovely partner, Maureen. Thanks to everyone. This was a really rewarding exchange. And Najat, really, it means a lot. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Really, Ronnie. Uh, I knew he was prepared for, for the questions. <laughs> but like always, I mean, just, you know, my answers are from the heart because I truly believe in what I'm doing. And if I'm in the parliament for four years, I'm going to do the best I can. After four years, the people will decide. And probably my husband will decide too. <laughs> <laughs> Your transparency is really admirable, Yanajat. Thank you. Guys, thanks again. Thank you.